There's an allure to this process and getting to know every individual as they are in that very moment in their lives. Chris Thompson is one of the more selfless individuals I've come to know. I feel confident in saying that even though I've only spent a few months in his circle. The grace he shows in his speech, the pleasant patience, and his thoughtfulness when he looks for deeper meaning in his discussions. Let's not forget the man deployed to some of the most dangerous spaces in the world. A surgical instrument of death utilized by the most elite military force our world has ever seen. The elite of the elite. You've heard the speech. You've probably seen the John Wayne poster. But the poster really isn't the goal of this project. This isn't a recruiting pitch for the Green Berets or even the United States Army. This is the story of a man who loves his family undeniably, who puts his friends above himself in the heat of battle, and who is constantly striving to learn. I don't think Chris cares much what people think about his service. He loves his country through all its flaws, and there are many. But his higher sight is set on creating a cultural shift, a movement set under the auspices of perpetual gratitude. I've talked about that a lot with this work. Transition, movement, purpose, legacy. What does it mean? How does it impact you? I made the drive to Galveston, Texas to find out how it impacts Chris. The man I met became a brother. This podcast and project is brought to you by our friends at Team RWB. Team Red, White, and Blue is a nonprofit organization forging the nation's leading health and wellness community. Founded in 2010, Team RWB supports veterans as they prioritize their well-being by offering real-life and virtual opportunities to build healthier lifestyles. Team RWB believes that a strong focus on mental and physical health impacts every aspect of life and is essential for veterans to unlock their full potential. For more information about Team RWB and its 200,000 members, visit TeamRWB.org. The Veterans Project is a comprehensive essay capturing the legacies of our warfighters, caregivers, and civilians who have stepped forward in defense of our patriotic principles in an effort to capture their stories and to never forget the staggering sacrifices of our nation's finest. This is the Veterans Project Podcast, where our legacies are the mission. Here's your host, Tim Kay. Welcome to the Veterans Project Podcast. My name is Tim Kay. I'll be your host as always. With me, we've got Chris Thompson here. Uh, Chris, it's been an honor uh, getting to spend the time with you and hang out uh, here in beautiful College Station, which I love. It, it's a cool town, man. Uh, thanks for thanks for coming on and thanks for being a part of this. This is so massive, so important to me. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the path here and and what led you to this? You know what. How did you get here, you know, in this space? And what made you want to serve? And I know that's a very general question, but what do you, what what brought you here? Yeah, uh, well, first of all, I would say that it's been great hanging out, you know, and I've, yeah, I'm really thankful the, t- the time that we've had so far. So for the people listening, like we've already, I've made Tim drive all over Texas, <laughs> like we've, been down at the coast hanging out and 
um, yeah, just being out in the surf, fishing, yeah, camping out, the whole deal. And now we're back in College Station. But um, uh, I would say that it's difficult to to answer that question, I guess, what got me here uh, in a way, because I feel like in a lot of ways, even 10 years ago, I would have said that I've lived, it, it feels like I've lived multiple different lifetimes in a single life. Just There's just been so much that um, has gone on in my life, and I've got to experience so much that yeah, it's hard to condense that down into something brief, but why I served, um, I first joined the Army Reserves right out of high school, and which was, it was kind of strange because growing up, there was talk of military service here and there, you know, maybe if recruiters came to the high school or something, um, I was always the guy that said, I will never join the military and I don't think I knew this, you know, that I could articulate this about myself is that I feel like I'm very much this kind of, in some ways, this, I need lots of freedom, you know, like I, I need to be able to do a lot of the things that I want to do. And, um, maybe in my mind, I was thinking that the military was going to be the opposite of that. And, um, so I always said that like, it was something that I was never going to do. And, um, but then, uh, when I finished high school, I was at the recruiter's office and ultimately joined the army reserves. Initially I was a mechanic in the army and, um, I, I knew nothing about the army, but really my thoughts were, and this is before nine 11, my thoughts were, okay, you know, worst case scenario is that this will teach me a little bit of discipline, which I sorely needed at that time for sure. And then the other is, I was like, I can learn a skill out of this. Like how I will learn some kind of skill that I can apply, you know, when I'm not doing army reserve stuff, I can apply it in other parts of the world. So, um, that those, those were my thoughts when I joined And then when I went off to basic training, again, like I had no idea really what I was getting myself into and really what the army was, but I, yeah, like the second weekend in basic training, just somehow I knew I was like, this is where I belong. Like, this is what I want to do. I don't want to do the reserves anymore. I want to go active duty. And, and at that time I was thinking, you know, cause I had um, one really good drill sergeant in particular who was an um, infantry guy and just did a lot to kind of individually mentor a couple of us. And, um, yeah, that, that guy taught me a whole lot, you know, lessons that I still apply today. And, and really like kind of encouraged me in the direction that I wanted to go. And I came back from basic training and AIT advanced individual training as a mechanic. And I was dead set on going active duty and dead set then on, I want to go active duty and I want to reclass to infantry, 
you know, because now knowing about the army, it's like I had no idea about the infantry, you know, and I was like, this is something that that I want to do. I want to be in in combat arms. And so then at the time, you know, there were a couple units, infantry units that I learned about that I was like, okay, that's where I want to go. And then a friend of mine told me about um, Ranger Battalion. He was in 3rd Ranger Battalion at the time and was like, okay, that's where where I need to be. And uh, I went to my recruiter, the same one that put me into the Army Reserves, and I told him, I was like, hey, man, I want to go active duty. I want to go infantry. And he's like, no, no, you don't. He's like, don't do that. And I was like, no, like I, I do. And he's like, no, you're accepted into a good school, which I was um, accepted into Texas A&M. And he's like, you just need to do that, do school. And again, this is before 9-11. So there was not much urgency war related or anything like that. And so I was like, no, I, I, I'm serious. I, I want to do this. And he's like, well, it doesn't matter because you have to wait at least six months. And then after that six months, it's dependent upon your reserve unit signing that they'll release you from the reserves so that you can sign a contract to go active duty. And, and so I was like, okay, well, I have to wait. And so then I, um, you know, was waiting until that six months was up and then it was a whole process getting released from the reserves. And, um, ultimately I signed a contract to go active duty and I would reclass to infantry. Um, I would go through infantry OSET, you know, I mean, as basic training and infantry school kind of combined just a longer portion of it, then go to airborne school. And then right after that, I went to special forces assessment and selection and then started special forces qualification course and then spent the rest of my time on active duty in third special forces group. And, but really there's a part of me that was driven to, and during, you know, as this whole process was unfolding for going active duty, 9-11 happened. And actually I kind of put going active duty on pause because I had drill that weekend right after 9-11. And there was some E7 that I'd never seen before who was just barking orders and like everybody was running around like, hey, there's we have something important to do. And, you know, he's telling us like, hey, we are going to war. Everyone needs to get all of their stuff ready, have a bag ready to go, all this. And so I was like, okay, this is great. Like, I don't have to worry about going active duty. Like, I'm getting ready to go to combat. I'm going to deploy. And looking back on it now, it's so, you know, crazy in a way that I knew nothing, you know, like I knew nothing about combat or, yeah, I mean, it just was, I I was not going to win the war like I thought I was, you know, like I just knew so little at that time and um and so I was kind of waiting around and it you know it never came like that unit wouldn't end up deploying for another three years they would eventually deploy but at that time I would already um 
be in third special forces group by the time they were deploying and I deployed right away once I got to third group. Wow. Was there, I want to take it a little bit further back though. Yeah. You as a kid, was there something that shaped you in the way that you were raised? And, you know, do you remember anything about home life being back where you were and, you know, you grew up in Waller, Texas, you said, was there something that shaped that portion of your life to where you felt like service was the thing or, or what was it like growing up in Waller? What do you, what do you remember about that? Yeah. So I don't come from a family of, you know, people that directly served. I had two uncles that were in Vietnam and, um, like a lot of guys, you know, didn't really talk about their service. They were both drafted and, um, I think, I mean, like a lot of like a lot of guys that served in Vietnam, there were a lot of difficult things that that they dealt with, and that was kind of it. And I don't think there was any kind of encouragement to serve. You know, it wasn't looked down upon, but there was no push from family members to do so. Um, really, the the only thing my parents, you know, the only thing that they would say about looking at the future is that they didn't want me to be in farming and ranching, which is like generations of what both sides of my family, my mom and dad's side had come from. And that's what my mom and dad did. And they just did not want me to do that. Uh, You know, other than that, I think if they, if I was doing something I wanted to do and was happy, then I think they were good with it. So, um, I won't say like, so I can't say there was any kind of like push from any direction for me to, to serve in that way. But I think there are a lot of things that I think led to me doing well in, in service. Um, just a lot of things that I was exposed to as a kid. I mean, one very simple one, just farming and ranching, Uh, You know, there's a lot of, I mean, hard work, just that work ethic piece that I learned. And I mean, it carries over beyond the military, but um, that was one area that it really, you know, benefited me later on in, in the military. And then I think, what are some other aspects that might have helped with that? Um... Yeah, I mean, I know that I, mean, I was involved in a lot of extracurricular type things, everything from Boy, Sc- Boy Scouts to 4-H, and I mean, there's just a lot of outdoor activities that, um, I, you know, I enjoyed then, and then a lot of it translated over into the military as well, and even in the Q course, there's times where we'd be out in the, in the field for, I don't know how long. And then we would come back. And then that very first weekend, you know, as soon as we were back, I was asking guys that I was in the Q course with, it's like, Hey man, I'm going camping this weekend. I'm going out in the mountains or whatever. And they're like, absolutely not. We're not going with you (laughs) because we just got through being sleeping outside on the ground. You know, we don't want to do that on the weekend right afterwards. And, but I just loved being 
and I still do love being outdoors. And, um, and so a lot of that came very natural to me. Um, even it, it helped out in selection is, uh, you know, there's some portions where you're on your own, you're by yourself doing land navigation and moving from point to point and you're all by yourself and you're doing it for hours and hours at an end and no one is there to tell you, Hey, you need to push harder or you need to slow down or, you know, you have to make all those calls yourself and it's dark. You know, most of your movement is throughout the night and you know, you're in the woods and all the stuff. And I, I think for somebody who, I mean, and, and I saw this in selection guys that were not familiar with that type of situation, it made things a little bit more challenging because there's an additional layer of discomfort. And for me, I was right at home. Like I was not having a bad time or anything like that. I was pushing myself, but at the same time I'm hanging out in the woods, you know? So, um, part so you's loving it. What's that? Part of you's loving it. Oh yeah. 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 And it, it was very natural in other words. You know, you you talked about the dynamic of combat, not understanding that, not understanding what you were getting into. Yeah. What was that like? You know, you get to third special forces group was joining an A team, you know, was it as much as you thought it was and, and what changed your perception of that? When you joined. Yeah. So for the first part, I mean, some of the things that I thought about when I thought about war at that time, I think weren't too far off, you know, is that um, there's killing involved, there's loss of life, you know, all of these things. Um, you know, looking back on it now, one of the things that I do know that I was off on my thinking was that I did not realize how great of love that you can experience, which sounds so backwards from what you would think. But when guys are risking their life, putting themselves at risk for the safety of their other teammates, you know, to, to support their other teammates, to save their other teammates, um, it's like one of the greatest loves that we can experience on earth. And I think I, I had no idea that, that that existed, which it sounds like a, a thought that you would never think that you would hear about war is that, man, there's a deep, deep love. And I guess another aspect that I didn't know before, you know, when I was really young in this process was that the extremes of emotions. So like, like I mentioned, feeling the greatest love, but also, and so the extreme of the greatest love, but also feeling maybe the greatest horror, the greatest fear, um, you know, like all, all the emotions, the greatest joy, like all of these emotions that we can feel, but really stretching them to the limits. And, um, yeah, I guess I, I wasn't 
anticipating that, but in a way I see it as, and I don't, I don't see it as a negative thing. Um, I, I see it more positive than anything, but I had no idea that that was something that, that I would experience. But really when I made the comment about, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. It was more of, I think I thought I knew enough to be really effective and I knew nothing about, I mean, just a lot of weapons manipulation, you know, just really, like I knew the very, very basics, you know, and just knew nothing about room clearing or, um, you know, handling detainees or any of this stuff. Like I just, um, and shooting was just, I mean, I just so, it's almost like being an infant, you know, and then gaining all of this training and experience and everything to where I felt like I was truly prepared for, for war. And, but my expectations, you know, the other part of your question, uh, I would say maybe being on a team was better than what I, I could have expected. Um, the guys, when I first got there were extremely professional, lots and lots of experience. Uh, they already had every one of them quite a bit of combat experience and, uh, some of them not even just Afghanistan at that time. Some had, um, served in other units and had, you know, combat jump wings and everything. And just, there's just a ton of experience on that team. And when I got to group, when I signed into group, I met with the battalion sergeant major first. And, you know, I talked with him for a little bit and he was walking me down to the company that I was being assigned to. And at that point I, I was not assigned to any team. I was just going to a company and then they were going to figure out which team I was going to go to. And as, um, this battalion sergeant major is walking me down to the company, he's like, you know, all of the teams in this company have just gotten back from a deployment. And, and so they're not deploying for a few months, but there's one team that's getting ready to deploy. It's our best team in the battalion, but don't worry about them because you're not going to that team. And sure enough, that was the team that I ended up getting assigned to. And my experience was really, I learned so much from, from those guys. And we talked about this yesterday is that one of those guys in particular on the team, I would describe as, um, when I finished the Q course, I had earned my green beret, but this guy taught me how to be a green beret. And it just, I mean, it shaped a lot of, you know, the, the team member that I would be and the person that, that I am today. And a lot of the things that, um, you know, some of the decision-making and things like that, that I use today, I learned from, from one of those guys, but I had tremendous leadership while I was on a team and, yeah, I mean, some of the best leaders I've ever had, and 
I learned so much from those guys too. And just all around, like my teammates throughout were just phenomenal. And so in a lot of ways, it was better than what, what I could have expected. That's beautiful. That's awesome. What, you know, your first time going into combat, of course, you got to get to some of the combat stories sure. and tell some of that. Um, what was that like? You know, you, you, you talked a little bit about not understanding some of the things shooting, you know, how much, I mean, you'd had training, you had a lot of leadership, but when you get in, put in the fire, it's a little bit different, isn't it? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, I'd say some, in some aspects, it's not much different because, I felt mm. like the training that I had was so great that a lot of things that, you know, if you're put in a really stressful environment, you know, you need your body to react and you need to be able to do things without spending a whole lot of time thinking about it. And so, and a lot of that was through repetition. We would, I mean, tons and tons of reps on the littlest things, it may be a magazine change, you know, it may be, um, calling in for a medevac or whatever it is. We just put lots of reps into, um, all the things that you would need to do in combat. And so, so many things were just automatic Mm -hmm. and, um, and so that, that served me really well, but I would say, Um, my first deployment to Afghanistan, um, yeah, I was a little, in some ways kind of surprised, but maybe that's not the best way to describe it. I'll just describe what that experience was like and then maybe come up with the word of how I would actually describe it. But so me and our warrant officer of the team were on the advanced party to go to Afghanistan. So at the time it was just us two from the team that were in Afghanistan while the rest of the team was back. And our job was to go out to the fire base, meet with a team that we were going to be, um, it's called a relief in place doing a rip with. Um, so basically swapping out with, they were going home and we were going to take their place. And so our job was to meet with them to start understanding what the situation was, um, all the logistics piece, like what was there in the fire base and, and all of those things to, so that we could let guys know back at the States, like guys from the team, let them know like, Hey, at the fire base, they don't have this, or there's all of these kinds of weapons. And, you know, we need to, we don't need to bring this, or we do need to bring that. And so it helped with, um, once everyone else came over. So that was a part of our job is to start doing that, that handover. When we got to Afghanistan, when we landed in Afghanistan that same day, one of the teams that was driving out to our fire base that we were going to, uh, they hit an IED. Two of those guys were killed instantly a third was flown to Germany and later died in Germany. And so I was like, okay, you know, this is real is that, um, 
guys right outside the firebase, you know, got blown up and, and they're very short period away from being able to come home. And now they're not. And so I was like, and you know, and they're doing the ramp side ceremony because we're in, in Bagram waiting to go down to the fire base. And so they're bringing these guys back. And then, <clears throat> so it's like, okay, this is, this is real. And then we, uh, me and this warrant officer would fly out. Um, this, the flight that we're taking is on a helicopter and it's stopping at a couple different fire bases, dropping people and equipment off before it gets to our fire base. So one of the fire bases that um, we had dropped off a couple other guys from third group who were doing the same thing like me and my other teammate, um, we dropped them off, flew to our fire base. And once we got to the our fire base, we had heard that, uh, I'm sorry, I, I switched it up. Um, they dropped us off and then went to another firebase, dropping those guys off. And then once they were dropping those guys off, they started taking rocket fire. So um, the enemy was firing rockets as that bird was landing. And so a dude who maybe taken a few steps on the firebase that he was supposed to now be at for the next nine months is now getting medevaced off of that um Firebase, so hasn't even spent a minute in F at the firebase he's supposed to be at for nine months, and is already getting medevaced because you know ended up taking uh, shrapnel from the um, uh, rocket fire that was coming in, you know the rockets, and uh, so it's like, man, this is like it's serious. And then uh, me and my other teammate had been at this firebase, and we're starting to do some of this handover stuff. And then, you know, we'd been there maybe a few days at this point. And another team that was coming to our firebase uh, gets ambushed and then ultimately is calling in for QRF. So they're calling in for, for help. Like they're pinned down, like, um, out of all my deployments, you know, it's, it is not common for teams to be calling in for a QRF for a quick reaction force. Um, and when that happens, generally like things are, are not, not going well in that fight. So, um, the team that we're doing that relief in place with, um, they got spun up and me and my teammate were like, Hey, we're, we're going with you guys. And so then, we all got on the on on the bird to go um, provide QRF for this this other team that's in an ambush and um, like I was like okay this is like my first like I am going into real combat right now like this this is this is it and I remember at first I was like man there's, we haven't been here for very long and there's dudes already dying, SF guys dying, Americans and other guys that haven't been here for very long who are wounded already. And then here I am, my team is not even in Afghanistan and I'm going on this mission. And, 
I was at first I was I was kind of nervous about it, but then I talked to you know my teammate who's I mean was super experienced even at that time. He's like, "Hey, look, you know, here's the plan. This is what we're going to do." And everything just went away. Any worry that I had was gone. And I'm like, "Okay, I know how to do this. This is like all of my training." And I was no longer worried about it. And we um, you know, got on Blackhawks and uh flew to where this ambush was taking place to try and maneuver on the enemy and support these guys that were caught in this ambush. And, um, and there's a whole another story that goes along with this that is kind of funny, but, um, but ultimately at the end of that fight, um, I would be carrying the first dead American that I would, would carry. Um, there was, another SF guy, a part of that quick reaction force that would get shot and ultimately die. And, um, and I would be now helping carry, you know, um, this dead SF soldier and putting him in a back of a truck. And this is maybe less than week one, you know, it's the first week. And the, and that's what, um, my experience was going into it, but, and at, there's a point where I was kind of, you know, you want to do a good job and, and you want to perform well. And maybe I had thoughts of like, you know, I don't know how I will be in combat, you know, how, how will I do? And, and you, you want to, to do well and you want to be a good teammate but there's also maybe a little bit of, okay, like I can really die doing this just like all these other guys. But after that, um, after, you know, being so close to someone losing their life that at that point I just accepted that I was going to die at some point in combat. And then I didn't really have a worry about it anymore. Uh, it sounds kind of morbid saying that, but, um, um, but that served me really well in a way is that, cause if I'm not worried about dying anymore, maybe I can do my job a little bit better. And that carried me throughout that entire deployment and probably did a lot of things that were taking a greater risk than maybe what I should have in, in certain, uh, times, but ultimately it worked out in the end. Um, so, so that was like, that was my introductory to my first deployment to Afghanistan. Wow. What there's a loss, right? And that's certainly painful losing somebody. Um, and that, that all happened so quickly. You talk about the experience of that and kind of starting to accept was, you know, were you able to realize a, a pain there where, you know, did you feel anything build as far as pain wise in that first instance, or did it take time for that 
to really occur and build up? Or is there just a realization like, hey, this is war? I think we talked about that a little bit earlier, but this is war and this is the way it is. Yeah, I think at that time, uh, this is not the right answer, but if there were any kind of feelings to where maybe that, um, yeah, I... Yeah, the loss of life. I, I think at that time, if there if anything was coming up, I totally just buried it down. Like I, I can't even have a. I don't have a memory of it phasing me too much beyond the fact of knowing that this is real war and people die and people get messed up physically and and mentally. You know, um, and maybe the mental side of things wasn't even in my view at that time. I don't, I don't think, um, just from, you know, my perception, I don't think there is a right answer. I think your, your answer is the right answer. Um, you know, that's what you experienced. That was your experience of it. So that is the right answer. I think. Yeah. I mean, I would continue that process over time is that just not let myself feel and that became a habit and then maybe some of that works really well in combat i think it does work it serves you well in combat but then whenever you get out of the military or you have a family those things do not that does not mix well you know you need to be able to feel those emotions and because ultimately at some point if you continue to bury stuff it's going to come up you know, eventually. And then, and then you're having to deal with it and it may not be in a way that, you know, a time or place that, that you want to deal with it. And so I've had to learn that over time is that, um, yeah, as someone I know says, it's, it's not about, um, feeling better. It's getting better at feeling. And so, uh, yeah, I would say for the longest time I was, so emotionless in a lot of ways, except for anger. Um, that was one of the few emotions and it was a lot of times to, to extreme. And I never heard this until recently, but it was, it totally could be a mindset that, that translated was that the only feeling you should feel is recoil and i i think that works well in combat again but in other areas of life it's not 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 suitable and it took me a long time to learn that so you talked about that first mission and you know kind of that experience you know on subsequent missions and as your track ascended through special operations and, you know, kind of learning, how did, how did that go? You know, did you enjoy it? Were you really, did you feel like it got better? Do you feel like it got tougher? I mean, what was that like as your career progressed? Hmm. Well, I mean, it was just different. Each deployment was different. Like that, that first deployment to Afghanistan, which was, it was actually my second deployment, but first one to Afghanistan. It, 
uh, it was just different. Even half of that trip. And what year was this? This was 2004. Okay. For that so trip. early on in the war, pretty early. Yeah. And I mean, there's so many, every trip is different in a number of ways. It could be in terms of like that trip for the first half of it. We had tons of support um, in all, all aspects, support in terms of, you know, we we're doing a lot of work with the agency where they had phenomenal intel and we also had dedicated aircraft support, you know, helo support. So, and this was a fun time is that, you know, we just spent a lot of time. I mean, some days we'd be sitting on the um, HLZ area of our fire base with the birds running like the blades aren't spinning. But um, I don't I mean, it's been so long ago, but they're making noises, you know, like they're ready to go, you know, like everybody's just sitting there waiting. And then, you know, the agency guys would get a grid and we'd all run on the bird and then go to that place and go hit that target. And it was, and, and I mean, it could be anywhere on the planet. I mean, this was all in Afghanistan, but because of the training that we had, it didn't necessarily matter knowing at that moment that it was going to be a two building compound or it had this kind of gate on it or, you know, anything like that. It's just that, you know, the bird would set us down and we would move and execute. And we had infantry support at that time and they would provide, you know, cordon, they would surround the area. So, uh, no one was squirting out. And so the Intel and the other military units support and everything was just phenomenal. And we went from that to the second half of that trip to not having any of that, you know, no aircraft support, you know, none of that. And then every trip was, was different, you know, like, in a different part of Afghanistan, um, terrain was different. Um, maybe mission set was a little bit different, different supporting units. Like, I mean, it's just, just different every, every trip. Um, and, and so I guess as it progressed, you know, that first trip, I mean, there are some aspects that were just a lot of fun you know, and, and then in my second trip to Afghanistan, it was very similar. And I was just so hungry on that second trip, even more so than on the first one to Afghanistan. And I, and I gotten some, gotten to go to some really good schools and that a lot of SF guys at that time were not able to attend. It was hard to get a slot. It was hard to get in, even if you had a slot. And then the attrition rate was still pretty high. One, you know, going through it, if you got, if you got a slot, you got in. And then at some point you may or may not finish the course because you're not meeting whatever standard. But the training that I got in that school, I just felt like it took my shooting to a whole nother level. It took, a lot of these, 
you know, combatives in a lot of the situations, a lot of, because I was on a, a DA team, a direct action team. And so a lot of our focus was just, you know, hitting targets, you know, clearing compounds and, you know, houses and that kind of thing. And, and that's what the school was focused on. All the skills that you, you would need. It just took what I felt like a lot of these guys that were on the team when I first got there had elevated, way elevated my skills. And then going to that school, it brought them to a higher level. And so maybe it was this, like, I have even greater confidence and I want to use these skills that I have. And, and so I was just really, really hungry, um, even more so than on that, that first trip to Afghanistan. And that trip was a lot of fun as well because our team was getting plussed up. And so really, you know, a lot, a lot, I guess some people don't know this about teams is that each guy on a team, they also, they have a job as a shooter, of course, you know, everyone has that job. And then guys have specialties, which may be weapons or, you know, a medic or engineer or commo, you know, their specialties that each guy has, but there's also additional aspects that come with that. So initially I was 18 Charlie, which is a special forces engineer. So construction explosives were a part of my skill set, but also engineers are responsible for a lot of the logistics piece. So, um, it may be, you know, food or whatever supplies the, that we need, and then managing inventory of all of this team equipment that, that you have. And it's not super sexy, you know, it's all these hand receipts and like tracking all this stuff, all this paperwork. Um, and so, but because the teams were being plussed up at that time, there were two other engineers in addition to myself that were now on the team actually three or i'm sorry a total of four of us um but one was now focusing on intel and so i came over to that deployment a few weeks maybe a month late uh, guys were already there because i was finishing up the school as soon as i finished that school like i got on the next bird like within a few days i i got myself to afghanistan with the team but when I got there, because things had already started to run and those other engineers taking care of all of the property stuff, all of the hand receipt inventory aspect of it, all of those other aspects of the job that maybe, you know, it's not on the recruiting poster kind of thing, all that stuff was already being done. So all I had to do was be an assaulter. You know, I just had to get on target and do my job. And, uh, that was awesome. It, you know, it made things a lot of fun. And, and then on that trip, I really got to be involved in the, a lot of the mission planning, a lot of planning the actions on ob objective and assigning where, different split teams were going to go initially, like when we first made entry into, you know, compounds and things. And that was, um, that was great. That was a lot of fun. And, 
And then uh, on the next trip is where things were, you know, begin to be different, I guess. Um, I would do another short trip to Afghanistan. Um, that was the one that I was telling you about with Riley and I went mm-hmm. over on um, another guy from third group who went on a um, pre-deployment site survey and I ended up getting stuck there longer than I had planned. Um, I was the last third group guy in Afghanistan whenever I came home from that wow. trip. Uh, but just the fire base that I went to is so remote and it was just really hard to get any kind of air support to, I mean, fly you back out and driving out was not an option. So when one bird got canceled to come pick me up, the next one wasn't scheduled for another two weeks or something like that. And then maybe it was weather that pushed that one back and yeah, I just ended up being there a whole lot longer than what I planned. And, and I want to say one of the, there was a, maybe it was a battalion sergeant major or something had called and said, Hey, uh, you know, you're the last third group guy, you know, we're still here, but like, um, we're getting ready to go home, you know, and you're going to be the last third group guy here. Are you okay with staying here? Cause I mean, I, it's like, as if I had an option, but I mean, I was fine with it, but it's not like, well, if I say no, you know, what are they going to do? <laughs> you know? We're bringing you home. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Come on back, buddy. Yeah. It's not like it was going to change anything, but yeah, uh, it's kind of funny to think about, but yeah, I, I mean, I didn't care. I was totally fine with being there. And, um, you, you mentioned something a, a second ago. Uh, you mentioned Riley, late Riley Stevens. Right. Uh, you know, son of Mick and Joanne, who we had as a part of the caregiver project. And right. what a powerful project that was. Uh, I didn't know Riley personally. Um, you know, getting to meet his parents and all that and seeing the power of the emotion and things that they experienced is just, it's, it's terrifying. It's tough. But it, it, it adds a richness to life and helps you better understand the contrast of how tough things can be. Um, you know, for me, getting to know the parents a little bit is just in, incredible. I mean, hard, but beautiful at the same time. Like, you know, I, I told Mick this one time, like, I, I wish I didn't know you because I know you because of him. And right. I wish you wouldn't have had to lose him. Right. But those sacrifices are essential to maintaining what we have. Do you, you, you said you remembered Riley. You know, you served with him. What right. do you remember uh, about him? Yeah. Uh, I mean, probably the last time that I really interacted with him was when we were flying over to Afghanistan. This was 2008. And um, I can't remember... The exact conversation, but um, yeah, I, I know that there were things that he was talking about future-wise and um, maybe future plans. And then, really, once we got to Kandahar, we kind of went to went our separate ways. Like I went out to my firebase, and he went out to where his team team was going to be at, and then, um, and. I mean, you don't have an idea of what the future is going to be. And so, I mean, you can never, never know who is going to be there or not. And maybe in some ways I kind of 
at some point accepted that everyone cannot be here at some point. And uh, that wasn't healthy either. I mm. think it helped me, you know, in in Afghanistan, but it prevents connection is what it does. Because if you have the expectation or the knowing the possibility of this person can no longer be here as a way to protect yourself from if they that does happen, then how much are you investing in connecting with that person truly? And, um, wow. And so, I mean, there, there's a lot of like hard lessons that I've had to learn over time and kind of figure these things out for myself. Um, I, I say for myself, I mean, there's a lot of people that have taught me things along the way that have allowed me to grow and become a better person mm. through it. But like you said, in the, the, the central moments of combat, some of that is necessary. You know, right. some of that is you have to keep a level of distance probably in order to be effective at what you do. Or, or, or is that true? You know, it, I'm it may a, not be, it may not be. Yeah. It, it, so I can't speak for anybody else and I haven't asked anybody else about this. So I can't say that this is like a common thing, but it's just where, what my brain was doing to protect myself. Mm-hmm. And, um, and unfortunately it carried over into life beyond the military and, you know, there was a time where I was having similar thoughts with my own family the people that I cared the most about, thinking about the most tragic thing that could happen to them throughout the day, you know, throughout their day, um, dozens of times over in a way to, if something bad does happen to the people that I care most about, then it won't hurt as bad because I've prepared myself mm. and it is, it's an, it's an awful way to live. It's not even really living, I don't think. And uh, how can you love effectively? Right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't think you can, but, mm. but again, I don't think, I mean, this, this was just me. I can't say that this is other people and, um, everybody, you know, and, and even too, like looking back on it, there was on one trip, a team that they lost within a one to two week span, they lost, I think a total of four guys from that team, give or take. And so in a very short period of time, there were almost half a team remaining and there were guys that were killed from that team that my teammates knew really well and were close to. And when that happened, I remember, I mean, my, some of my teammates being really upset about it, you know, uh, looking back on it, total normal emotions, you know, feeling grief. Maybe there's even some anger, um, but I was the guy that was like, hey, everybody needs to stop moping around. We still have work to do. We still have missions to do. Like people need to move past this. And that's the 
that's not the right answer. And, um, and so do you, do you look back at that? Do you regret that? Do you regret the way you responded in those moments? I don't know if, I mean, I know it's not the right thing to do. I've learned that, um, because like we were talking about earlier, I was just pushing all of my emotions down and, um, thinking that was going to work out well in the long run and and it doesn't. And while others may have been letting themselves experience those emotions and have, and maybe we're going through the process a lot healthier than, than I was. Um, but it's not the right thing to do, but I try not to have a mindset of being really weighed down by some action that I cannot change at all. That's you good. Know? Yeah. And, um, would I do something totally different now? Yeah, absolutely. But, um, I, it's not something that I let really weigh on me and, and hold me back because it's not the right thing, but I can't, I can't change it. You know, you, so, so you did seven tours, right? What do you feel in all those lessons that you learned? Cause you learned a lot of lessons, right? Seven tours yeah. of combat. Um, so many different lessons learned, but what do you feel was one of the more powerful moments in, in all those experiences? Maybe, you know, I mean, I'm sure many life-changing moments, but was there one or two that really stick out to you that really, you know, to this day stick with you and, you know, just powerful, tangible moments that have helped teach you lessons going forward? There are so many, there are, um, yeah, like I, I mentioned before the leadership aspect, I learned so much and I learned, yeah, I mean, just so much from, from my teammates. And I think, you know, this is not the, I I don't want to boil it down to a single moment because there are so many. But one of the first ones that comes to mind is that I had a, a team leader who I can't remember when I heard him say this, but he said something about um, he wants to put himself in the most dangerous place in, in the fight. Um, and maybe at the time that it it didn't really hit me, but I later understood the power in it. And it wasn't about this, like a glory type of thing. He's not like trying to, you know, be the superhero in this battle or whatever. What he was trying to do was, yeah, he wants to put himself in the most dangerous place in the fight and affect that space is what it was. And so it is in effect that space has a broad range of things because sometimes I'd seen this guy put himself in that place and he may not have been shooting. He may have been communicating on the radio and, you know, 
calling for other support or um, helping to get aircraft on station, all of these different things. And But what it does, if a leader is willing to put himself in the most dangerous place, if they're willing to do things that other guys may, like, I don't know about that, but if he's willing to put himself there, then I should be able to put myself there too, you know? And so it causes guys to, okay, like, let's go, let's do this. If, if he is going to put himself there when he doesn't have to, then we're for sure going to be right there with him. And so, you know, that carries over into life is that I especially don't ever, I try never to put myself above anybody. Um, and I, I started to correct you, but I didn't. There's a couple times when you called me sir, you know, and I was like, I know it's a politeness thing, but I don't even want that because it almost seems like that I'm above someone else and I'm not, you know, I'm above no one. And, um, and being willing to do the things that guys that maybe you're in charge of, you know, um, being willing to do whatever they have to do, whether it's like we're talking about earlier, like burning shit, you know, like, um, I, I may not have to do that for whatever position I have, but I'm definitely willing to do so. And I'm not going to ask anybody to do something that I wouldn't do myself or I haven't done already, or won't do right there next to you. And that's something that, you know, I would say in that moment, I learned and has continued to carry with me. But like I said, there's so many, I mean, the leadership that we had was just so phenomenal. And there's so much that I learned that in so many moments, you know, but that's one of the first ones that comes to mind. And let me tell you, I say that, sir, completely out of respect. I know not to call an enlisted man in, in Green Beret, sir, because yeah. <laughs> I might have a fight on my hands. <laughs> so, yeah, Don't call him, of, sir. <laughs> a, a lot of people think it has to do with the enlisted side of things, yeah. and that's not it for me. Mm. You know, it is purely about... I'm just another dude, you know, I am not above, above anyone. And, um, yeah, it has, has nothing to do with the, I know for some guys it is. Oh, know, that's an like, awesome attitude. I yeah. love it. Yeah. That's cool. You know, were there, were there dark moments for you overseas? You know, was there, or did a lot of those, did you have come downs, you know, when you came back, did you, or, or, or did any of those happen overseas where the realization of being, you know, what you'd had to do and the positions that you'd been in, did any of those hit overseas or did some of that transpire later on? I would say most of it was later on. Yeah. Um, there was, I mean, there's definitely moments of, I don't think I'm going to live. I'm not, I'm not going to make it out of the situation. Like, this is the place that that I'm going to die. And um, if you think about that thought process and 
accepting that and what that must be like, it's a pretty, if for someone is going to accept that, okay, I am accepting death, you know, um, things are not going well around you. And um, there are definitely moments of that. And, um, but obviously I, I made it out of it and, and things worked out and I wasn't going to try any less because of what the situation was looking like. Um, if anything, I was going to try harder. And, um, so there's some moments of that, but they came and went ultimately really fast. And, you know, maybe in the moment it may seem like a lifetime, but in actuality, it's a short period of time. And even afterwards, I was able to kind of, in a way, joke about it, you know, and not take it so serious. But when I got out of the military, I did contracting and then, you know, still deploying. And it was really once we left that whole situation, I say we, like when me and my family moved back to Texas and I left that whole world and at this point for forever, you know, and, um, which had been my entire adult life. Um, that's when the wheels started coming off and I slowly began to, to recognize that. And it really started this ongoing health journey, this healing journey that I've been on. And in some ways I feel like I grew a lot as a human being during my time in the military. And in some ways I feel like even now having been out the work that I've put in, I've grown even, even more, uh, mm. which is strange to say, thinking about it. And in a lot of ways, I feel like I'm kind of getting started with life right now, you know, and, uh, and I say that in the sense of what is to come in the future. I don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but I think it's going to be good, you know, and I think that there's so much more to come in life and I'm just pumped about experiencing it. Mm, that's awesome. You know, I, I hate to take you back because, you know, uh, you're you on know, this. I don't, I don't mind, you know, like you can ask any question and like, I don't, I don't mind. Yeah, but you're moving, you're moving forward with beautiful progress. And <laughs> <laughs> this odd, things were getting way better. And then Tim took me back into combat. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't care at all. It's fine. So, you know, you talked about there being moments over there where, you know, you thought you might not make it. Right. Can you talk about one of those maybe when, you know, in particular that maybe was more harrowing that, you know, where, you know, you said it went quick, but at the time it probably had to seem like it went on for a while. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, this one, it's kind of tough because, um, ultimately a, another American U S soldier that was a part of our element, um, would end up being killed in this particular situation. And, 
Um, I just want to be respectful about that. Totally. Um, But um, ultimately, we were trying to, to recover the body and um, knew that we were going to be walking into a, an ambush. We're going to be ambushed, dismounted. And, um, and that's a kind of a strange thing in itself is that you're going to be walking into this, this ambush. Like, you know, you're, you're going to be walking into it and, one of the most vulnerable ways that that you can and 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 that's what happened is that um um ended up getting ambushed and um being pinned down and i had a tree uh there's there's a plant here in this room for people listening that i mean i can almost put my whole hand around the the base of this tree this this plant that's about the size of the tree. It was probably a little bit bigger than that, um, but it was not a real piece of cover. You know, um, <laughs> sounds terrible. But that was the only piece of cover that I had, wow. and so most of our element was pinned down. We ended up splitting, and so my half was pinned down. All of the Afghans that we had moved towards um, what became this ambush. Um, had ditched us basically and so now it's just a couple of us and sf guys and um ultimately would be pinned down and um in that the same tree that um i was taking cover behind um not only was you know um machine gun fire and everything um that were were pinned down by but also um, RPGs were hitting parts of this tree and detonating above me. And, um, you know, and so, like, it's just I'm in no place to really try and affect the, this, this space. Like, I am in such a vulnerable spot. And... And then at a certain point, we had um, machine guns and, you know, uh, like 50 cal, Mark 19, 240, um, like these heavy machine guns and um, grenade launching type weapons. Um, The guys up on the high ground, because we're down in this green zone in this um, really vegetative area, they couldn't support us because they couldn't see where we were at. You know, um, you wouldn't think of this in Afghanistan because people think of Afghanistan and just like rocks and desert kind of thing. But there's a whole lot of green zone um, near the riverbanks and all that. There's just a lot. It can be very thick with vegetation. And um, but so they couldn't see us at all. And they needed um, to be able to engage the enemy, we could tell them a distance and direction from our position, but they couldn't identify exactly where we were at. And so for us to be able to let them know where we were at, um, you know, I would end up popping a smoke grenade so that they could see where 
the friendly position was at. And then from there, they would know where the enemy's at and, and could engage them. And, but the downside of that is if you throw a smoke grenade, not only can your buddies who are providing support see that, but so can the enemy. Mm-hmm. And like, I knew that when I was throwing this smoke that it's like, when I do this, like if I throw this in front of me, then it's going to not give the most accurate position. Basically, if I threw it in any direction around me, it's going to draw fire to that position. And then the guys up on the high ground supporting me are not going to have the most accurate position of where we're at. And so I essentially threw it close within my position, knowing that that was just going to draw more fire on myself from the enemy in which it did. And it's kind of this moment of like, things were already bad and it's, I'm not going to make it better for myself, but hopefully better for everyone else. And, um, but the guys on the high ground were able to engage the enemy, um, based off, you know, that smoke and knowing where our position was at and we're able to, um, accomplish what we, we had tried to do with, um, recovering, um, another American soldier and, um, we're able to, to bring them back. Um, although they, you know, they ended up being killed in action, um, but did not let that person be taken by the enemy and, you know, whatever they would do propaganda wise with the body and all this stuff. And, um, we're able to, to at least prevent that and, and have the body come home to the, to the family and everything. And so, um, yeah, that was, that was one of them. Man. Wow. That, you know, that that's incredible. Such a tough position to be in. You made it worse for yourself, right. But made it better for everyone else in the position. Uh, and you know, sacrifice is so evident all around ultimately to recover a fallen American, which has to be done in the moment, right? It has to be done. Yeah. And I also want to add too, is that, um, I don't want to make it seem like it was solely upon an effort that I made that allowed us to accomplish what we needed to do. There were other guys that were, um, in a better covered position, able to engage the enemy better. There were guys able to make those calls to help direct, um, uh, the guys doing the support by fire, you know? Um, I mean, it was, it was entirely like without other guys, you know, doing what they did, it it wouldn't have worked out even close to what it did. And, Mm -hmm. um, and, and so, yeah, I don't, um, I, I want to make sure that, that that's noted, that, yeah, yeah. that people are aware of that. Well, that's incredible because of each precision element of that team, you know, is what makes Green Berets so good at what they do. You guys together as a team working effectively and affecting the fight. I mean, that's incredible. You, you know, that, 
that was a really hard time. I'm sure. Was there a adrenaline dump from that? You know, was it was it tough after that, or do you remember anything about that? You just moved on. No, I continued to move on because yeah. there were still we still had you know more to do. Yeah, and then and this is kind of where. Um, you know, we ended up moving locations. So we stayed, we ended up staying overnight. Um, and in this valley, like by the end of that day, that particular mission, we killed, um, that one was somewhere around 55 or so, 50 or so, um, enemy fighters. Um, the first time we went into that valley, it was just you short took of, out fifty enemy fighters. The whole your whole your team, team took yeah. out fifty enemy fighters right. in that area, right. effectively the, over what period of time? A single day. Wow, a period of day, Man. daylight. Um, the first time we went into that valley, it was very close to eighty enemy fighters that um, had ended up killing, and so it's a, it's a really bad bad spot. Um, but after that we moved, I can't remember how far we moved from, from that spot where a lot of the fighting took place. It wasn't far though. Um, and we, we ended up, um, staying overnight. So, um, for lack of a, so people understand it, it's it's not camping there, <laughs> but we, you know, essentially stayed overnight in our trucks and everything, offset from where that fight took place. And you know, you're rotating on shifts, um, being up in the gun, you know, with night vision, um, you know, pulling security basically, basically, and. So you're getting a little bit of sleep here and there, and then you're up pulling security, and then you're back down, and then back up again. And at one point, the last um, time that I was down sleeping, I had a dream that we were we had to go back to that same spot. Um, like that period of night had ended, and then in my dream we had to go back and into that same, same valley. And, uh, and when I woke up, I remember, you know, kind of joking about that and we ended up going back in the, the area, but not to the exact same spot. But, uh, but so to answer your question, I kind of made light of it. I didn't, um, yeah, I wasn't, Yeah, too, I didn't let, again, maybe I just wasn't letting myself feel too much of it. And, and that was just my way of, of coping at the time. And, and yeah, and then just continued on with, and, and we actually talked about this last night in that sometimes I think it's easier when if you lose someone in a combat zone, it's easier than being stateside when at the funeral service of it, because when you're deploying, it's you still have important stuff to do. 
Like if something happens to somebody, it's not just over with and you sit at the firebase the rest of the time. You still have missions to do. There's still a lot of stuff that's going on. And so maybe part of that is just, you know, it's occupying the mind of like, okay, I, I have to get ready for this next mission or we're coming back off that mission. That means I've got to refit my kit. I've got to do weapons maintenance, whatever it may be. I have to start planning for the next mission. Um, we have to get the trucks ready or whatever. I mean, there's all kinds of things that still have to occur. And so it makes it easier because in a way you have to go on with the very next thing. Stateside, the families, there's less of that, you know, like they are just in this place of, um, tremendous grief and, there is no, there's lots of time to sit with that. And, um, and that can be, it can be, I mean, the whole situation is tragic. Losing anyone is, is awful, but sitting with that and, and seeing how it affects the family members, the parents, the brothers and sisters, the childhood friends, um, and, and the emotions they're experiencing, it, it made me want to never go to another funeral again. And I didn't for, for a while because of that. And, um, and so, yeah, it's much, in my opinion, it's much easier downrange to, to move past, um, something that tragic, tragic that happens versus on the, on the back end when, uh, the service members coming home in a casket. You, you mentioned the wheels falling off, you know, and eventually they did for you, right? Like you, you experienced that for sure. When was that? And what was that like? So that was 2013 is when I started to recognize it. 2012, I was a contractor and I was still deploying. Um, my son was born in 2012 and when he was born, like I knew it's like, I want to be a dad who is, who's there with him as much as possible. And I know it's been like a short period of time that we've already spent together, but I don't know if like how much it means to me to have my family with me all the time. Like I take them everywhere that I can. Um, I still do a lot of travel. Um, I say a lot as if it's burden, burdensome, but it's not, it's, uh, it's all these trips that I want to do. And, you know, like I've said that my son who, um, before he was 11, so at 10 years old has been to 10 different countries. And so, I try and take my family everywhere because I that's I want to be with them and I want to I want to be a present father and I want to be a good dad and that stuff is some of the most important things to me in my life and so I knew that before my son was born and so 
I was, I was like, I have to find something different to where I'm at home more. Like I can't deploying all the time is not something that's going to fit with what I want to do. And I know a lot of guys that do it, a lot of old teammates that have double digit deployments and they have, um, multiple kids and, um, and they love them more than anything. And, um, and I have a whole lot of respect for that because it's really difficult to leave a family behind to go on a deployment. I say leave behind, but, um, I mean, to, to spend that time away from them and to be really focused on something that is dependent upon other people's lives and your own, you know, is where your focus needs to be. And uh, I have immense respect for that. Um, but for me, I just, I knew that I needed to, to be at home more. Um, and so I was able to stay back for the birth of my son. And then I was supposed to be deployed at the time, but then right after he was born, I was back overseas. And then that, and I knew going into it, I was like, this is my last deployment. This is it. And, um, and it was when I came back from that trip, that was it. like two months later, um, moved my family back to Texas and this is where we've been ever since. But, um, I, um, and so there were a lot of things that technically I'd been a civilian for three plus years, a civilian quote unquote, but I, um, I was again doing a lot of things that were very familiar. I was around military people all the time. I was still deploying. I was support, I, mean, I was still a part of special operations, you know, and and I was, when I was stateside, I was still working with military people and in the special operations space. I was still seeing my old teammates, still going to team parties and things. And, and then, um, all of a sudden that was entirely gone moving back to Texas. And it may sound like that it is a, um, well, you know, and both my wife and I, we have family here. Um, our parents, um, at that time, grandparents, aunts and uncles, cousins, the, the whole deal. Um, a lot of our family is really concentrated around this area where we live. And, and so, you know, it may seem like, well, you're going back to family and maybe you're leaving a really close, not blood family, but family, like old teammates and things like that, and going back to your blood family. But I was not the same 18, 19-year-old kid that had left and now moved back, coupled with, I, I mean, we really had no community in mm. a sense. Like, we had no network here. We had, um, yeah, I mean, it was just really hard getting connected with the community. And I tried a number of veteran organizations and it just, something was not a good fit for me. And, and really how all that started was 
a part of this whole healing journey is that learning that cancer is one of the leading causes of death in the special operations community. And that was just a part of all of this research and everything that I'd been doing over the past decade, you know, and how I can be the best version of myself. And, um, and so I was curious as to why that was. And one of the things that I learned was, uh, chemical stress and chemical exposure is, um, a big part of that cause of cancer disease. And, um, in the special operations community, guys are overexposed to a lot of things. I mean, a lot of veterans have been exposed to the whole burn pit piece and breathing in all of that to there's, you know, special operations guys going and shoot houses over and over again, doing explosive breaches, interior breaches, and it's kicking up all of this lead and all the stuff that, um, has just been collecting in, in shoot houses. And then when you do those breaches, you know, you're breathing in that stuff. It's getting on your clothes and getting on your skin, being absorbed through the skin. And, um, so like I, I really started paying attention to what I was putting on my body. Uh, you know, I couldn't change what had happened in the past or what I'd been exposed to in the past, but what I could do is change what I was being exposed to going forward. And so, um, me and my wife initially turned to some all natural brands and learned that even those don't even, you know, there's still synthetic fragrances, you know, it's still these man-made chemicals, sometimes harmful chemicals in, in these products. And so we started making, uh, some of these products for ourselves and making something that was cleaner, that was better for you, that didn't have a lot of these harmful ingredients that, I mean, looking at labels nowadays, I mean, you can take a look at it and it's like, what is this stuff, you know, that we're putting on our body? And so that's initially how it started was just making a lot of these products for ourselves. And then we now got to a point to where we can share it with others. And so what that looks like is natural soaps, deodorant, beard oil, and pomade. And we have a few other extra items that, that we sell, but that's our, our main focus right now is providing products that, that are all naturally scented. It's made in the USA. Um, and it's something that is cleaner and, and better for you. And, um, yeah, sometimes I get the question of, you know, people asking if it's something that I use myself and it really like sets me back when I hear that because that's how it all started is cause I, I made, we started making this stuff for myself and for my family. And, uh, yeah, we've just been able to, to grow it to where we can share it with other people now. That's really cool. Um, you mentioned something earlier in like uh, growing. You, know, you talked about vets. You talked about Team RWB. But there's a there's a certain spiritual aspect to your life, right? And right. that's growing. Can you talk a little bit about that and like 
where you stand on the spiritual side and like how this, you know, how is, how does, how do you incorporate faith into your journey and and where you're at? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, you know, I, I mentioned to you that I had grown up in a Christian household, you know, went to church and was pretty involved in the church. And even, um, my wife and I have been pretty involved in the church in various degrees, but, you know, pretty active in um, going to church and those kinds of things. But I would say that now it feels like I'm almost, you know, reading the Bible for the first time, like hearing some of the stuff for the first time, like it's really hitting for the first time in a way. And at first I didn't really know why that was. Um, and really what I've settled on is that I think that if you, for me, if I'm able to clear out a lot of this stuff that I've been carrying around with me, maybe trauma or really difficult experiences that, and I've been able to let go of a lot of that, that it opens up like it, it becomes almost this spiritual experience. Like it opens up this ability to be able to, I would say, connect more with God, be more aware of um, how what I believe is that God is like, there's a spark of God in everyone. And, and if I believe that to be true, I think it makes it easier for me to be able to, to love other people and be kinder to other people. And, and really to be able to do that, you have to have that same love and compassion and gratitude for your own self. And having that allows me to just be a better person for other people. And so it's become, uh, that has become a really great journey in itself. And um, I would say it's not something that I, I push on other people or anything. I love having conversations about it. Even some very good friends who have different beliefs than what I do. And we're able to have like open conversations about what we both believe. And yeah, and it, it's great to, to challenge your own thoughts. And, um, and I, I enjoy doing that, but it's something I would say my faith, um, my belief in God has just really, it's a, it's become a big part of my life, that whole spiritual aspect. And, um, and it's great to see a lot of that growing within, my wife and son too, you know, um, and, and some of it has come from my son. We're just very fortunate that he's able to go to a Christian school. And I mean, especially now with the way that a lot of public education has gone and he's in a place, not only where it's a, it's a great education, but the values that they're teaching and, that he has an exposure to Christianity outside of 
just me and my wife. And it's great to see the really like God is in his heart at a very, very young age. And we, I think maybe, I can't remember if you had asked him, uh, asked my son about the music that he liked or something like that, or what, maybe what music we listened to. And we mentioned that we listened to a lot of Christian music now, and it was really our son being exposed to a lot of this Christian music at school that he wanted to listen to it at home and that really got me and my wife into it. And I like two years ago, I would have told you like, I hate Christian music. It's the last thing that I want to listen to. But what is so important about it, it doesn't have to be Christian music is that what, you know, when I, you know, when I came back from uh, treatment through vets, you know, a part of my outlook was uh, paying really close attention to the things that I was putting in my body. And, you know, I was already looking at what I was putting on my body and um, what I was putting in my body in terms of nutrition. That only just got better after um, coming back from treatment. But what I wasn't paying attention to are the other things that I was putting in my body. And what I mean by that is the the things that I was watching on TV, the uh, watching the news. Like I don't I don't watch the news at all anymore because you know it's all this negative stuff. And you know, and the music I was listening to, um, just a lot of like really dark type stuff and um and the shows and things that I was watching I mean these were all things that you know that I'm putting into my body in one way or another that I'm seeing or or listening and if it doesn't have a positive message you know if it has some kind of negative message I think that can over time play a it can have a big impact and it's not going to be a good one. And, and so I've just been, since then, I've I've been really cautious about the things that I'm watching, you know, the podcasts that I listen to. Um, and, and that's why I like really the, the things that I watch now are mainly documentaries. I just love, I love learning. And so, um, but listening to, some of this Christian music that my son wanted to play, you know, and this was almost two years ago. And uh, at first I was like, ah, you know, I don't really want to listen to this, but I'll play it. And hearing it, I'm like, man, this is a really positive message. And it doesn't have to be Christian music, but if you're putting all of this positive, you know, stuff into your body through music or what you're watching or the people that you're interacting with, you know, just that, that communication, man, I, I think it, it, it changes something and, uh, in, in a positive way. And so, yeah, that, that's been, been great too, to be able to, um, yeah, and it's part of why I've been able to to enjoy that. We've even, 
uh, gone to, you know, taking my son to a couple of Christian concerts. And at first I was like, ah, you know, like I'm not, not really into it. And yeah, uh, those have by far been the best concerts that I've been to in my life. And that's really cool. Yeah. And it's just so powerful. And, uh, we went to one recently and it was, um, and this doesn't have to be through Christianity, but there's just a point of where just people recognizing in this whole, you know, thousands of people in the stadium recognizing that, hey, we're we're all in this thing together. You know, we need to be kinder to each other. We need to love each other and, yeah, support each other through through this whole thing. And, um, yeah, and it's just been, to me, it's just been really fun continuing to, to learn more in a lot of the things from the Bible and other places that, you know, I'm learning about just my faith have just been really meaningful and yeah. And, and fun too. Yeah. That's awesome, Chris. Appreciate you sharing that. Um, I think that's a very important thing to anyone, you know, is that aspect of spirituality. And you talked about the physical, you talked about the mental, you talked about the spiritual. So we hit on all bases. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I appreciate sure. it, man. Thank you. Um, for those of you listening out there, uh, check out Cleaner. It's K L E A N R dot com, right? Is that correct? K L E N R. K L E N R dot com. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Still getting the still getting used to your branding. Yeah. It's awesome, man. That's Thanks. cool. Really cool stuff. Cleaner.com. And you have an Instagram and a Facebook, right? Right. Yeah. Okay. Both cleaner. Um at cleaner products. Okay. Is, um is the Instagram and um yeah, I think Facebook is something similar. Awesome. We'll drop the links. Cool. Pre appreciate your time, Chris. Thanks for coming on. It's, it's really been an honor. Awesome. Thanks, man. Those of you listening, don't forget, our legacies are the mission. This has been the Veterans Project Podcast with our founder, Tim Kay. Check us out at www.thevetsproject.com, on Instagram, at The Veterans Project, Facebook, The Veterans Project, and Twitter, at Project underscore Veteran. Thanks for listening, and don't forget, our legacies are the mission.